0: The following sermon was preached to the congregation at Victory Baptist Church in Kansas City, Missouri. We hope it is helpful to you and anyone you choose to share it with. However, we would also encourage you, if you have not already, to find a local New Testament church where you can assemble with fellow believers, hear the word preached, and observe the ordinances given to Christ's church. For more details, you can visit our church's website at victorybaptistkc.org. Again, that's victorybaptistkc.org. Thank you for joining us. Well, this afternoon uh, we'll be looking at worship. And it might, ironically, it might seem odd to preach on worship since that's what we're doing. But on the other hand, it seems like there could be no better place for a sermon on worship than in the midst of worship. So, um I may be doing more on this in the coming weeks for the afternoon service, but I thought we would just at least begin by asking the question, What is worship um, it's a question that is I think in large part not answered in uh, general kind of church culture uh around the country and oftentimes I've found that worship is often misunderstood in terms of its significance within the Christian life and and our need for it, especially as it manifests in a corporate setting like like on the Lord's Day. It's misunderstood as to its significance, uh, but it's also misunderstood in terms of, of what it is. What is worship? What does God use worship for? Why are we commanded to worship God? And, and so on. So we're going to ask the question, what is worship? And uh, just to start out and to kind of lay out where we're going, and I'll, I'll pray here in a moment, but um, we, could, we could start by saying that worship is a theological, doxological, sacrificial, beneficial, and eschatological response to God, a response to what and who God is and what God has done for us, what he's doing for us, and what he will do for us on into the future. And so I think that kind of, that's the general thrust of where we're going. Worship is a theological, doxological, sacrificial, beneficial, and eschatological response to God and to what God does for us. So with that said, let's go ahead and, and open in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would bless this moment. Uh, that you would bless this afternoon with um, understanding a further understanding of Christian worship, uh, of what worship is in terms of its most fundamental aspects, and we pray that, as you teach us through your word, that we would be led to to glorify you in our worship all the more going forward as a church. Lord, help us to receive that which you have for us uh, by a, a heart that is characterized by a humble faith that you've given to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's in our Lord's name we pray, amen. Worship is a theological, doxological, sacrificial, beneficial, and eschatological response to God, a response to what and who God is and what God has done for us, is doing for us, what he will do for us. That's worship in terms of a kind of long-winded, one-sentence answer. And so what I want to do is I just want to look at those really five aspects that I listed out. Uh, five characteristics or five marks of what worship is. It helps us to understand what worship is according to the most bare bones of worship. Worship is a theological number one doxological number two, sacrificial number three, beneficial number four, and eschatological number five, response to God. So we'll begin with that first one. Worship is theological. It's a theological response to what God has done for us. So number one, worship is theological. It's firstly and foremostly theological. And that's because our worship is to be entirely occupied with God. If theology is knowledge of God, and that's what it is, and if worship is the worship of God, then theology is the very thing that leads us to worship. It's often been said that theology ought to lead to doxology. If doxology characterizes man's response to God, then our theology ought to lead us to doxology. Our knowledge of God ought to lead us to a worship of God. Without theology, proper worship is impossible because it's theology that leads us to such. And it's theology that guides such. If you look at Acts 17... Remember in Acts 17, Paul is engaging the philosophers at the Areopagus or at Mars Hill there. It's a very popular dialogue, a very popular interaction between one of the Lord's apostles and the pagan world. And as Paul reasoned with the philosophers, he acknowledges their ignorance in worship. And he had. Took kind of a survey as he walked through Athens there. And and after he found an altar dedicated to the unknown God, quote unquote, Paul says to the philosophers, The one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you, in Acts 17, verse 24. And so, on the one hand, you have the philosophers who are doing what they know they should do, in a sense they know they should worship. All men have a natural kind of impulse to worship. There's this thing called natural worship, and it describes this natural duty that all men perceive in virtue of them being men that they must worship. There's a natural sense of worship in all men, but of course sin comes in and clouds the judgment, idolatry corrupts the affections, and this natural sense of worship is of course misdirected, misdirected toward idols. And so the philosophers and the pagan world at large worship, but they worship without knowledge. They worship without proper theology. Theology informs our worship. It guides our worship. And without theology, we would worship without knowledge. It would be like pagan worship. But it's also not enough to just have a theology because the the pagans had a theology. They had some doctrine. It's not enough to just have doctrine. It's not enough to just have a theology. We need the theology. We need true theology. Theology. The pagans had a theology of sorts, but it wasn't true theology. It was false theology. And in order for our worship as Christians to be true and lawful, we need a theology that comes to us from God himself. More specifically, we need a theology that comes through Jesus Christ. We need a knowledge of God that comes through the Son of the Father, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. to use that language in Hebrews, who is the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, according to Hebrews 1, verses 2 through 3. It's only in Christ... Do we find the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? Do we find that true theology that will lead us to a true and lawful worship of our glorious triune God? And where do we encounter Christ? We don't just uh, take a plane to Israel and find our Lord there uh, teaching uh, anymore. Why? Because He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. um, And many years have passed, have elapsed since the time of our Lord's earthly ministry. And so where do we encounter Christ today? And the answer is we encounter Christ in no place else but the Scriptures. And I made mention of this in in the morning hour this morning, but the inscripturated Word reveals to us the incarnate Word. I think I said this morning that the Incarnate Word explains to us the inscripturated Word. He, he, he expounds the inscripturated Word. Well, in this case, the inscripturated Word reveals to us the Incarnate Word, right? Reveals to us the Incarnate Son. We encounter Christ in the pages of Holy Scripture, and it's in Christ that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. It is the incarnate Christ who reveals to us the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the only proper object of our worship. Who do we worship when we come into this place, when we assemble together? And all of us would say we worship God. Who is God? What is God? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christ And the knowledge we have through Christ leads us to triune, true, and proper worship. Worship is, beloved, theological. It's theological. And one more thing concerning worship is theological. It's theological in the sense that it is informed by theology. We need theology in order to worship properly. We need theology in order to be instructed correctly in our worship Um, no theology, no proper worship. But I would also say that in a certain sense, true worship informs our theology. So there's this mutually informative relationship that you have between theology on the one hand and worship on the other, or worship on the one hand and theology on the other. They inform one another. So while theology informs our worship, our worship will result in an increased knowledge of God a growth and maturity in our knowledge of God. And without true worship, our theological growth is going to be stunted. Our contemplation of God will be incomplete. Our knowledge of God will be lacking. So worship is theological in the sense that it is guided by our theology, but it's also theological in the sense that it guides itself our theology. Worship is all around theological. And in a day and age when you have uh, even churches and, and even seminaries, oddly enough, downplaying the place and the necessity and the significance of Christian theology, I think it's really important to link theology with worship, to link even the high speculative or theoretical theological uh, treatises and, and, and doctrines and things that you could think of throughout church history, things that you've perhaps read or things that you've heard preached or taught, to think of that high theology even as being informatory of our worship, so that worship, our response to God, is never divorced from our knowledge of God, and so that our knowledge of God is never divorced from our response to God. And that leads us to the second point here, the second characterization of worship. Worship is doxological. So if theology is the knowledge, doxology is the response. If worship is theological, it must also be doxological. If theology is knowledge of God, doxology is our worshipful response to that knowledge. We Of course, we we did it just this afternoon. We did it this morning, but we sing the doxology at both the opening, and they're different, right? They're different expressions, but we sing doxology at the opening and the closing of every service here at Victory because we we are responding to God and what God has done for us. That's the purpose of our doxology. So why do we sing doxology at the beginning of a service and at the end of a service? Well, it's not just because that's what we do. That's, it's not just—it's not just that's just our ritual, and that's what it happens to be. And Pastor Josh wants it that way. Uh, the, the reason we sing doxology at the beginning and at the end of our service is because that is an opportunity to respond in different ways between the beginning and the end to what God has done for us, what God will do for us, what God is doing for us. And so at the opening of worship or, or, or at the call to worship, we respond doxologically to even just the privilege and the prospect of being brought together in the providence of God to worship. This gracious right and privilege that we have in Christ alone to come before the throne of God in reverent worship is why we sing the doxology as we come in to this setting. We get to, every Lord's Day, we get to travel beyond the veil to fellowship with God in the Holy of Holies. That, 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 that is what Christian worship is. That every Lord's Day, what is signified to us is that Christ's work has been completed, it's been finished, the veil has been torn, and we have been restored to God. And Christian worship, every Lord's Day, is an expression, confession, and declaration of that reality. The fact that we have been brought near to God ought to be met with a thankful celebration, and that's what doxology is. It's celebratory, most fundamentally. It ought to be met with a thankful celebration on our part. Opening doxology is an expression of our thankfulness that we are where we are, before the throne of grace, ready to participate in worship. And there's all sorts of practical uh, benefits to that as well, that uh, as we sing the doxology, as theologically rich as it is, it, it, it disposes us correctly such that our, our, our minds are no longer taken up with the things of, uh, of the world, but it's taken up with this high heavenly doctrine that we sing in the doxology. But it's also an expression of our thankfulness that God has brought us together to worship Him this week. And then at the close of worship, we respond to what God has done for us through, the, through that particular service, so at the close of worship, we sing doxology because we're, we're thanking God and we're expressing our thankfulness and our response to God as a result of what God has done for us, even just in that service. It's a response to what we've heard preached. It's a response to what we've sang. It's a, it's a response all around to how God has worked through us in that service. So from the singing, from the Scripture reading, to the sermon and the fellowship that we experience when we're together, we are, we are celebrating what God has wrought, what God has done in our midst over the past hour. All right. Again, it's an expression of thankfulness, but this time at the end of the service for what God has done for us and to us in the service. All right. So worship's not just uh, checking the boxes. It's not just this is what we do. This happens to be our... Our our ritual. This is an actual response to something actual that God does to us actually. Worship is doxological. True worship is essentially a response of thanksgiving for what God has done for us and to us through Christ. Think about the man for a moment whose sight Jesus restores. Um, This man has his Sight restored. This happens in John nine. He has his sight restored. He he then witnesses to other people concerning the work of Christ um, because now he can see. And, and what do they do? They he's this man's bearing witness to who Christ is. So they excommunicate him. They 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 put him out uh, from them because he confessed Jesus was sent from God. He wouldn't let that confession go. That's what he kept saying. This man was sent from God. So Jesus asks the man, do you believe in the Son of God? In John 9, 35. And then the man responds, asking a question. He doesn't know completely who he's talking to. And so he asks this question, who is this Son of God? Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus tells him, you have both seen him and it is he who is talking with you. (laughs) The man must have been quite taken having the very Son of God revealed to him. And this revelation happens on so many beautiful levels because number one, Jesus reveals his identity to this man through his words. But number two, Jesus just healed this man's vision where this guy can see for the very first time and here he's looking into the face of the Son of God. You have both seen him and it is he who is talking with you. Verse 37 of John 9. And so the blind man has his eyes open to see Jesus, and he has his eyes open by Jesus to see Jesus. And then when Jesus reveals his true identity to the man, what is the man's response? He has a response. What is it? What, what does the man do with what he has just learned? Another, another way we could ask a question, what does the man do with this theology? He's just been enlightened. He's just been given knowledge of God through Christ. What does the man do? What is his response? Well, he worships. And then the man says, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped Christ right there at that moment in verse 38 of John 9. So the man was doxological. He was celebratory as a result of receiving the revelation. As a result of the theology, he had been enlightened too. He was responding to this Christ who had just been revealed to him. And in many ways, when we come together every Lord's Day, we're repeating week in and week out this man's experience. (laughs) Because in many ways, that man's experience, if we're true Christians, and if you're a true Christian, that man's experience is your experience in principle that god has opened your eyes to see the glories and majesty of himself through the face of the lord jesus christ and your response is worship and that's why we worship week in and week out we are responding to what he has done for us we are we or we were we were blind now we see, we were ignorant, now we know. We were separated from God, now we've been brought near to God. Worship is doxological, it is a, an expression of thankfulness as a result of that. As a result of Him opening our eyes, of Him saving us, redeeming us, bringing us near to God. Right? The truth has come to restore us to the truth, and we respond in worship. Worship. We respond doxologically to the theology. That brings me to the third point here, and the third aspect is that worship is sacrificial. Worship is sacrificial. In the Old Covenant, worshipers were obligated to offer up bloody sacrifices. It was part of the Levitical law, and so they had to, they were obliged to offer up bloody sacrifices And the purpose of the bloody sacrifices was to signify their need for bloody atonement. They were desperate for a a, a bloody atonement, namely an ultimate bloody atonement that would fully and finally atone for their sins. And so in the New Covenant, that comes to a fore. The ultimate bloody sacrifice has been made in the sacrifice of the incarnate Son of God. All right, so whereas the old worshipers... Whereas the Old Covenant, Old Testament saints, worshiped through means of these typological and shadowy animal bloody sacrifices, they were anticipating the ultimate bloody atonement or the bloody sacrifice that would take place in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we, on the other side of that, on the other side of the work of Jesus Christ, which has been completed, it's been finished, we worship in another way. It's different. Visually, it's, it's different in many ways. Because in the New Covenant, we no longer offer up bloody sacrifices, do we? There's something that's fundamentally different about New Testament worship from Old Testament worship. And that is we no longer obviously bring animals into, the, into a place like this to, to sacrifice them. There's no temple to which we bring our sacrifices regularly for priests to slaughter them and offer them up before God. That doesn't happen in the New Testament. That doesn't happen in the New Covenant. So why is that? We offer up spiritual sacrifices instead in New Testament worship. We offer up spiritual sacrifices of thanksgiving. So if you read 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 5, for example, Peter says, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Worship is sacrificial. And it's not sacrificial in the same sense that the Old Testament worship was sacrificial. It's sacrificial in a spiritual sense and it has direct reference to our response for what God has already done for us. Our sacrifices are no longer bloody. Our sacrifices are spiritual, originating from a heart that has been changed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But while these new covenant sacrifices involve our spirit or our soul, they are of the heart after all. We have to remember that as people, we are soul and body. We're soul and body. That's what a human person is a soul body or a body soul composite that's what a human person is most fundamentally and so sometimes you'll hear people say well you know new testament worship is spiritual and so there's no need to go to a building on sundays or or gather together with other christians on sundays i can just i can just worship god in a in a spiritual way here in my house right you, you, we've probably all heard different kinds or versions of that same strategy or that same view but we have to remember that we're not just a soul. We are soul and body. So these, though these are spiritual sacrifices, and that's how, the, that's how the Bible refers to them, that's not to be understood in, in, in a way that excludes anything we do externally. Anything we do with our bodies, right, so these these sacrifices entail the whole man; they entail our bodies and things which pertain to our bodies as well. so Paul writes, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service in romans twelve twenty one and providentially that was the text that we read uh, for our scripture reading this afternoon, so you think about the way in which worship happens uh, on the Lord's Day in a corporate setting. We stand with our legs in worship, don't we? So our bodies are engaged. Our bodies are engaged. We stand with our legs in worship. We sing praises with our mouths, utilizing our vocal cords in worship. We eat the Lord's Supper with our mouths in worship. We we tithe for the stewardship of physical things in our worship. Care for the building. Uh, and things of that nature. The whole person is involved in worship. Some theologians throughout history have described worship as an assault on the senses. And I really appreciate that characterization of worship because it tells us that God actually addresses the whole man in our worship. The whole person is a sacrifice unto God following or flowing from a heart of gratitude for what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And so worship involves the whole man. It's an assault on all the senses, if you think about it. There are things we touch and, and can feel. The Lord's Supper is a tangible thing, right? The the bread and the and the cup. These are things we can feel. These are things we can taste. We can see. And we see one another. We're Each of us, restored images of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, worshiping God together. So we see, we hear, we hear the Word preached. And so worship involves the whole person. The whole person is to be engaged in the activity of worship. The only lawful sacrifices in the New Testament or in the New Covenant are sacrifices born from a heart of faith. Paul says whatever is not from faith is sin. And so the the proper sacrifice in the new testament under the new testament is not one of uh, compulsory obedience or anything like that it's 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 an expression of thankfulness for what god has done for us we we render our our bodies and soul the whole man as a living sacrifice before god hebrews chapter 13 verses 15 through 16 says Therefore, by Him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. Notice what it says. Therefore, by Him, by Christ, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well, pleased. So worship is sacrificial. Praise, singing, fellowship, Preaching, intercessory prayer, tithes and offerings, time spent in this place of worship, assembled together. All of these things are expressions of the new covenant manner of thankful sacrifice. A sacrifice that involves the whole man, the whole person, both body and soul. Worship is sacrificial. But fourthly, worship is beneficial. So worship is theological, worship is doxological, worship is sacrificial, worship is, fourthly, beneficial. It's beneficial. There's something that God does for us through worship. That's that's one area that's been particularly lost, I think, in in evangelicalism as a whole. We've lost the idea and, and we've lost the trust that God actually does something to us in our worship. There's a, a book out there written, and its title is "What Happens When We Worship," and I think that's a an apt title. But it's also a timely book because we live in an age uh, where there's really not a lot of divine significance attached to our worship, and we don't understand, and we don't pay attention to what God is actually doing for us and to us through worship. Worship is beneficial. So let's return once more to Paul as he declares the one true God to the philosophers back in Acts 17. And there he he makes a very important qualification to the philosophers because he's distinguishing Christianity and the one true God from their pagan deities and their pagan religious system. He says, nor is he, the true God, Yahweh, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life breath and all things that's acts chapter 17 verse 25 we have to be careful that we don't understand our worship as us giving something to god that he did not have before all right worship is not for god's good there is nothing you can do in all of your strength and in all of your good intent to add anything to the infinite divine essence that is God. Worship is not for God's good. God has all goodness, lacking nothing in himself. All right. Worship is not for God's good. Worship is for our good. Worship is for our good. This is a key distinctive between Christian worship and pagan worship. Remember in the pagan world, their gods needed all sorts of things. There were things that their gods needed in order to perform certain tasks and in order to, to bestow certain kinds of blessings upon their people, upon their parishioners. Christianity has never taught that. Worship is for our good. God has all goodness in himself. He lacks nothing. He's not like the pagan deities who need things. God is goodness in Himself, and so He doesn't need any goods from us. And so even when we say that you know, worship is giving God His due, and, and, and there's a right way to understand that. We need to understand that there is a, 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 a due, something we owe to God. We owe Him our whole persons. We're not say, but we're not saying we're giving something to God He didn't already have. To give to God what we owe God through worship is but our expression and confession and declaration of our realization or recognition that we belong to him, both soul and body. That he has sovereign rights over everything about us, every aspect, every corner of life. He has sovereign rights over it. And worship is an expression of the fact that we believe that because we don't honestly recognize that fact in our sins. In our sins, we claim things for ourselves, and we deny the reality that is God's sovereignty, but that doesn't change the reality, does it? The reality is that God owns it all. And Christian worship is just being honest with that reality. It's an it's a submission to that reality. It's a recognition of that reality that God is Lord and that we belong entirely to Him. We might be able to say that worship is an admission in both soul and body that we are God's creatures and that He owns us. We belong to Him. He owns us because He created us, because He sustains us, and because He purchased us through Christ Jesus. And so as Christians, He owns us in a very particular or peculiar way because He has purchased us through the blood of the Son of God. But our worship does nothing to benefit God. It does everything to benefit us. He owns us to bless us, beloved, not to take from us. And he does this in a few ways. Worship is beneficial to us in a few ways. I just want to go through a few ways in which this is specifically the case. Number one, worship benefits us because worship forms us. Worship forms us. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Admonished. Teaching. You know, to be admonished is to be instructed. It's to be informed. And and here, corporate singing, which takes place in worship, of course, is a means by which God informs us. Our singing is a means by which we inform one another as to the truth of the gospel, as to the truth of who God is. That's why it's incredibly important for our hymns to be theological and doctrinally sound, because it's a means by which God informs us. He forms us through the singing of hymns. Again, There are things happening here on the Lord's Day. It's not just like we just come together to sing and it's arbitrary. Just like it's not just the case that we just happen to sing doxology at the beginning and end of our services. When we sing, God forms us through such means. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, Paul says, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And so look at that. There's another element of worship there, preaching. So we have singing, hymns, that forms us through admonishment, but then here we have preaching, preaching Christ in Colossians 1, 28, that results in maturity or completion. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that or so that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. So the preaching of the word is a means by which we are matured or made complete. Worship forms us. Right? So that's one way worship is beneficial. Another way worship is beneficial is worship encourages us. I mean, just through a a purely experiential, you know, angle here. How many of you walk out of here on a Lord's Day and have a sense of encouragement? Um, And I I know I do. Um, There's a sense of encouragement that comes with true evangelical worship we're encouraged by one another we're encouraged by the prayers we're encouraged by the word hopefully that we've heard worship encourages us so it forms us and it encourages us when paul promotes prophecy in 1st corinthians what's his goal we 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 can take him of course to mean preaching in that context and in 1st corinthians 14:31 he writes for you can all prophesy one by one so that here's the goal all may learn and all be encouraged. So here, preaching or prophecy leads to encouragement. What happens in worship? Well, preaching happens in worship. So what also should happen in worship? Encouragement. And then in Acts chapter 20, verse 30, the word of grace edifies us. We read there, so now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up edification and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And so the preaching of the Word of God is, this, is the central, firstly, it's the central element of Christian worship. The Word of God is central in Christian worship, it's the most important thing in Christian worship. And just kind of as an aside, if you were to go into an older cathedral, either in England or on, the, on continental Europe, you would notice that in the older cathedrals, the pulpit is typically up on a, a, a stairwell and it's off to the side, all right? And one feature of the Reformation was the fact that as the Reformation progressed, that pulpit was moved from the side to the center. The very reason we, we have pulpits in the center right here in the middle of the floor and not off to the side is because of the conviction historically that the Word is center in our worship. The Word of God is central in our worship. And because the Word of God is a central element of Christian worship, it's a means to our sanctification, our encouragement, to hear the Word of God and to be encouraged, to be built up. So through worship, God encourages us. He forms us. He encourages us. Thirdly, He disciplines us through worship. Worship disciplines us. So through spiritual formation and, and encouragement, we grow in our spiritual discipline. I'm not talking about church discipline here in the, in the sense of, of excommunication um, or something like that. I'm talking about general church discipline, corporate church discipline, that we are growing together in spiritual discipline, in devotion, and our desire to love and to serve the Lord through a, a right and true worship and through obedience, as a response to what God has done for us, so our hearts, being inflamed through means of worship, then desire godliness. Godliness then leads to um, a progression in holiness. So worship is beneficial to us. God does something to us and for us through worship. It's not a time when when God takes from us. Uh, even when we think about tithes and offerings, you know, we think about us. As you know, giving uh, giving something to God, uh, but we have to remember that even God uses that as a means to bless us. God uses our tithes and offerings as a means to bless us. Um, there's even reference to this in the Old Testament. If you turn back to Malachi chapter three, because at the end of the day, God doesn't need our money, right? God doesn't need any of that stuff. And he says in Malachi chapter three, verses eight through ten, "Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. All things belong to God, right? Um, and so we ought to recognize that fact in our in our worship. But you say, in what way have we robbed you?" in tithes and offerings you are cursed with a curse for you have robbed me even this whole nation bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now in this says the Lord of hosts if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it so even as we get ironically and and maybe a little counterintuitively for us at least as creatures, even as we give in our worship time, offerings, as we give in our worship our labor, um, and as we, as we serve the church through various means, the Lord is actually giving to us. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. And it's an expression of God's grace to us and His loving kindness toward us. So worship is beneficial to us. It's not not a time when God takes from us. It's a time during which God gives to us out of his infinite abundance. God doesn't need anything. God gives. He gives. So worship is beneficial. Fifthly, worship is eschatological. Now this point we could spend an entire sermon series on. But we're going to cover a whole three paragraphs. And so... Bear with me here, and, and maybe we'll expand on this point as we go. But worship is eschatological. It's forward-looking. It looks forward. It's forward-looking. Uh, eschatology is the doctrine of final things. And so uh, it, it looks to the purpose for which the world was made and the goal for which man was created. If you were to define eschatology as broadly as possible, it would be that. All right, it's the finality or the end or the goal of the creation and of redemption. All right, it, and, 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 the, and that, that goal or that end is consummate fellowship with God. So worship uh, proclaims this, it depicts this, and it's, it's generally eschatological. Our worship is forward-looking. And and in three ways, all right? So there's a few ways in which our worship is forward-looking, in which our worship is eschatological. First, worship is man's eschatological purpose in and of itself. Worship is man's eschatological purpose. Man's purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To borrow the language of the Westminster uh, Catechism, the Shorter Catechism, question one, answer one, man's purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, do all to the glory of God. Everything that you do, do it all to the glory of God. Worship is an exercise in the glorification and exaltation of God as we enjoy him in fellowship with one another. Worship is the purpose of man. And more specifically, New Testament worship is spiritual. And as such, it signifies a restoration of man to God who is spirit. There's very little intermediary in New Testament worship and that's on purpose. You know, we're not, we're not worshiping through means of much. We don't worship through means of bloody sacrifices and so on. Why? There's an image in that simplicity of our worship. And the image is this, our restoration to God. We have less instrumentation in our worship. We have less intermediary in our worship because our mediator has brought us to God. And so we worship in spirit because to worship in spirit befits God's nature who is spirit. We've been reconciled to God, so our worship is proportionate to that reconciliation. And so New Testament worship is a further step in man's purpose, renewed and restored to God through Christ. Man's purpose is to worship. New Testament worship represents a restoration or the restoration of that purpose. So every time we come together here, we are declaring and depicting man's restoration of his purpose in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's something of the image of God in man that has been restored. And we celebrate that and declare that and depict that in New Testament worship. We've been brought near to God. Man's purpose has been restored in Christ Jesus. And so we worship in a way that befits that reality. Secondly, worship anticipates eschatological new creation. Worship anticipates eschatological new creation. Christian worship is a manifestation of the new creation in the midst of what remains of the old creation. All right? Christian worship is a manifestation of the new creation in the midst of what remains of the old creation. New Testament churches are outposts of the new creation within the old. All right? New Testament churches are outposts of the new creation within the old. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so think about the dynamic here. This is a place full of believers and thus those who are made new in Christ. They are a new creation in Him. And we worship in this place together in assembly with one another. Well, out there, and and this is, this is the sad reality but out there just outside of our walls and just outside the context of New Testament worship there are countless people fallen in Adam right so and 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 in so far as a person is fallen in Adam they are an article of the old creation and so we're brought into this place we're brought into Christ through the spirit and we express that reality through Worship which anticipates and signifies new creation in Christ and in Christ alone. Galatians chapter 6, verses, verse 15, Paul says this For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but a new creation. So the old ordinances have passed away with the introduction of the new creation begun in Christ. All right, the old ordinances have passed away with the introduction of the new creation begun in Jesus Christ. And our worship is an expression of that, but also it anticipates the consummation of the new creation, that we still wait for the fullness of the new creation to erupt upon the scene. Thirdly, worship is a reflection of eschatological glory. There's a slice. We, we say this all the time. Is worship is like a slice of heaven. It's a slice of glory. There's a, there's a vision of heaven, a kind of imperfect vision of heaven in our worship. And so in Christian worship, in New Testament worship, we experience a slice of the future right now. We experience a slice of the future right now in corporate worship. Writing to the church at Corinth, Paul says, but we all with unveiled face Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So this is a present beholding of the glory of Christ which Christians experience and worship. We know that we're not going to experience beholding the glory of God to the fullest extent imaginable until we are in the presence of Christ at the end. We understand that. But now there's still a sense in which that future reality is enjoyed by us in the present within the context of new testament worship we 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 presently experience glory to an imperfect extent and this is evident in corporate worship it's evident as we come together as believers i mean w- what does the gospel as soon as as soon as Christ completes the the work, and then Pentecost rolls around, and 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 tongues the the, the apostles begin speaking tongues, and people from all over the world begin to uh, to understand the gospel because of because of the apostles speaking in tongues. You know what that signifies? That signifies that the babel curse is reversed in Christ, right and And the fallenness that came to a head, not only at the flood, but after the flood with the Tower of Babel, God coming down to scatter the people in their languages. People are restored unto Christ who is the pilot of the new creation, the creator of the new creation. We are restored unto Christ, people from all tribes and tongues, brought back into fellowship with God through Christ and through Christ alone. And so, in a sense, we're, we're, we're experiencing what heaven's going to be like now. We have people in this church, as small as we are, from a bunch of different backgrounds. There are people with backgrounds that do not align one iota with the other person. And yet, we're sitting in the same room with each other, and we're worshiping the same God together. Is that not a picture of heaven? It's a picture of glory. I mean, in glory, it's going to be just unimaginable to us now. There are going to be people there that... Died two thousand years ago, died four thousand years ago, right in different cultures on the other side of the planet right and and so we 're going to be all brought together in glory, and at that point we'll, it'll no sin, right no forgetfulness, no distraction. We will be brought together in glory to worship Christ forever. but here, even now there 's a picture of this, and so just to conclude. Worship is theological, doxological, sacrificial, beneficial, and eschatological. It's those five things at least. There's more that we could say about New Testament worship, but it's, it's formed by God. It is a response to, to, to God. It's sacrificial unto God. It's beneficial because of God and how he gives to us. And it's eschatological as it looks to a future and end and the consummation of our goal to be with God uh, when it all comes to a fore in Jesus Christ, so what is worship? It's all of these things. It's it's theological, doxological, sacrificial, beneficial, and eschatological. I think we'll continue to look at worship uh, over the next few weeks. Uh, uh, I think it's just really important that we understand uh, what happens here every Lord's Day, what should happen here every Lord's Day, uh, that we understand that you know this. This is a very significant moment week in and week out. And if we don't understand it by faith, if we don't understand it according to God's word and according to what God says about worship, then we're prone to just begin thinking about New Testament worship and the worship of of our church as something that's mundane, as something that's ordinary, uh, that's not really that interesting. And I think what we'll come to find out upon looking at worship through the Word of God is we'll come to find that worship is very interesting. Uh, And worship is a a time at which, a point at which God actually meets with us and communes with us in a very special way that doesn't happen uh, unless we are gathered together and assembled together on the Lord's day as a church to worship God in a very peculiar manner. So with that said, let's go ahead and pray to close this out. God in heaven, we pray that as we come before You that we would come before You looking to Christ, resting in Christ, and knowing You through Christ. And that as a result, there would be a response. That there would be doxology. That we would recognize our benefit. The fact that You do something for us through worship that it is a time of divine nourishment where you feed us with your word and you encourage us through your saints. Lord, help us to understand New Testament worship. We pray that you would get the glory, that you would protect and preserve each one of us, bless and keep us in Jesus' name. Amen.